0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the DD Geopolitics Podcast. I am joined once again. Lydia is finally back from vacation. And of course, JM, as per usual, today we're going to talk about the clashes between the East and the West Bricks and what is going on with this Ukrainian counter Lydia, how was vacation?
1: The vacation was great. I'm very jet lagged. And as you know, sane people when they're on vacation, they try to stay away from news, but I am not sane, (laughs) which is why I read all the news.
0: So I will try to keep up. I will attest to that. Lydia, um, I didn't really notice that she was on vacation. She was very much available and around. So she's definitely paying attention. J.M., how was your
2: week? Oh, a normal one, just being me.
0: <laughs> of course. All right, so let's talk about it. Um, first things first is uh the Baltic States, JM's favorite region of the world. The Baltic States Kaya 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 said uh that they would be disconnecting from Russian uh energy and not in the at the end of 2025 but at the beginning of 2025 wow, I know. Well, right and so i'm just kind of confused because maybe jm can um can enlighten us but what is going to be the plan because they're uh, they are so in, so dependent on russian
2: energy Oh, the plan's very simple. Just import a lot of very, very high-priced liquefied natural gas from the United States. That is the plan. I know, I know there's an awkward <laughs> silence i know there's an awkward silence well, but I'm, I'm
1: just pondering this statement because seriously because it, it sounds kind of suicidal yeah which is why i was quiet because <laughs> i was pondering that idea in shock i mean it is it it is what they're about to do i feel like but it is very um here's not the thing very about smart the baltic
0: states is that america loves the baltic states in terms of uh, strategically. Um, they love to have the Baltic states and the Baltic states reciprocate that love right back. So, I mean, that's a great plan and all, but I don't know that America loves the Baltic states enough to give them a price that's not going to absolutely destroy their economy. But
2: what economy really do the <laughs> Balts have? I, I, I know that we like engaging in uh, taunts on right the baltic states we love calling them chihuahuas we like reminding them that they're not very important on social media i often like taunting them hey baltics and you know reminding them about jonas noreka the lithuanian patriotic front the latvian legion the eighth zargi the Omakaitse. say these are all going from south to north the various collaborationist groups, movements that worked with the Nazis, and yes, they did work with the Nazis, and that murdered most of the Jews in the Baltic states without the Germans needing to devote too much manpower to it. The Balts took care of that for them. They also provided a lot of the manpower for anti-partisan operations in western Russia, so around Pskov. Also to do more things in Belarus. If you've seen come and see, you know what that looks like. And so when the Balts act like they're a bunch of victims, well, it's not just, you know, a Chihuahua. It's a rabid Chihuahua that has attacked and tried to kill someone, but that for some reason has not been put down. Oh we love we love to put we love to we love to point this out. And we like to highlight their hypocrisy. We like to point out that in terms of the balance of power, they mean very little. But let's get serious, just as I was there by pointing out the collaborationist formations. We go, (laughs) but there's uh, nothing very funny about mass murder and trying to eliminate entire ethnic groups from your territories because you think that because, you know, the Balts have a very, very high proportion of blue eyes that their blue eyes and title them to suddenly live like they imagine people in Western Europe do as opposed to how, you know, Western Europe is a very, very lovely place, but it's still a place with problems. That more to the point, <laughs> the Baltic states are really do survive by falling into the cracks of the global economy and by exporting labor. So yeah, if you look at GDP, they have a very high GDP per capita, but a lot of that is once again from, you know, invest from banking and being tax havens, and not every country can be a tax haven and banking doesn't employ that many people. They also have very threadbare labor protections and there is problems with domestic employment like all the way back, um, at least in the last figure I can remember from, but it was uh, 2020. So I'm sorry about that. It's a bit out of date. But the unemployment rate in Lithuania was 9%, if I recall correctly, wow. 9%. In Russia, it was 5%. And this is 2020. So this is in the midst of COVID. And obviously, Russia is now at full employment. And Russia is at full employment when actually there is a net Immigration into Russia because people from Central Asia or even, don't say it, including the (laughs) Baltic States and Ukraine, (laughs) want to come to Russia because there are jobs there and they speak the language. Um, Very true. So the Baltic uh, the Baltic states, yes, they look impressive, like in terms of if you look at the cities on the outside, it looks very impressive on paper, but in terms of what these people actually have to offer and these places have to offer, mm, not very much. And it's also a case of, oh no, a bunch of states with a combined population of tick, 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 at most six million people, and that's probably being generous— are not going to buy natural gas from Russia anymore? Oh no, whatever will Russia do when it has economies that are growing rapidly like China and India with over a billion people who want to buy their gas and oil? Whatever is Russia going to do to replace this hole in its heart and its wallet?
0: Well, I think that's where I always get confused about the Baltics is because and that's I'm not looking at it from a lens of like, is this going to hurt Russia? I I'm looking at it as how much is this going to really hurt the Baltics? I mean, Estonia alone, uh, I know in 2020, 100 percent of their solid fossil fuels and natural gas came from Russia. So we're talking again. You brought up the population. We're talking about an area with a population less than man, less than New York City. So obviously, that's like swatting a tick off a horse's back. Like Russia doesn't care, but I just can't really understand the willingness to hurt yourself and your population so badly to get in the good graces of of America. And the Baltics have always acted in those interests in the interests of America more so than I can i can I can say for most other states in Eastern Europe.
1: Well, you know how we say in Russia, we have this saying to freeze one's ears off to hurt your grandma, which, basically, <laughs> yeah. you know, which is basically what a lot of these countries are doing. They're essentially doing all these things to hurt Russia, which if you look at it this way, it is what it is. And they're doing more harm to themselves uh, than than good. But if if they want to do that, they they can. And Jam just answered all of my questions because I was actually <laughs> s- sitting here wondering what is their economy. Right.
0: I mean, me too. I know that Estonia has a very big uh, tech sector and a very good intel community, but that's not an, an export, you know. And mm-hmm. um, those are talking about contractual obligations and stuff like that, that's not hard export. So, yeah, I, I don't know a lot about the Baltics in terms of their present day economic status I do know about their activities during World War II, but that's just because that's my self-study area. but yeah, so I I, I was kind of wondering the same like what what's gonna make up for this 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 huge gap?
1: Well, the only the only thing that I guess I kind of disagree with GM on is and you know I felt attacked a little bit as I usually do on these Again. podcasts I, I absolutely do believe that people with blue eyes deserve a special status and special treatment. And just just you know, just throwing it out there. Okay, I'm gonna really actually fair.
0: I'm gonna actually second that. Thank and, you. Thank and you. then if they have dark hair, they should get extra points. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> well that <what> agreed. <laughs> and then so then we've got the Estonia or the Baltics kind of maneuvering and like continuing their movement towards the West. And now I'm going to bring up JM's actual favorite country in the world, which is France, who asked to participate in BRICS. Why? And what does this mean, JM? Especially do you think that they want to participate in BRICS because Algeria put in a bid to join?
2: Um I think they probably just want to uh, break things up and try and insert themselves but unlike the British where they're going to start lying to everybody the French actually when they attempt to break things up and insert themselves into situations they try to do so through charm rather than just by being that annoying little guy who you wondered why did I invite him to this party up uh, but they got <laughs> turned down I think because um Geopolitically, they have absolutely nothing to do with BRICS. BRICS, after all, is at bottom an organization made up of major states, which wants to find some way of ensuring that their national sovereignty can be upheld and also the ability to just do trade without being excessively interfered by, by the way, the global system has currently been run. And when we say the global system, we inevitably mean the Western-dominated global system. And we, and BRICS actually, you know, goes up, it goes down in terms of how solid it is. And we can see some of this with the fact that Vladimir Putin was effectively disinvited from attending the BRICS summit in South Africa, because to do so would have put the South African government in a very awkward situation, because the Democratic Alliance Party of South Africa, which, by the way, I looked up in our research for this program, and oh boy, is it interesting! The Democratic Alliance Party filed, you know, a suit that if Putin were to land in South Africa, they would need to comply with the Rome Statute, South Africa's solemn obligations, and arrest Vladimir Putin. Well, that sounds so lovely if you're a Westerner. I mean people who are standing up for the rules-based international order, freedom, and democracy. It's in the name, after all. Now, let's look at the leadership of the Democratic Alliance. They have nine top federal leaders, six of whom are white. South Africa... White population is only eight percent of the population. This um uh, <laughs> is a, a little suspicious, to say the least. <laughs> mm, you don't say.
0: <laughs>
2: oh yes, so it's that kind of situation. But clearly, the South African government, at least as led by the ANC, deeply resents the fact that they have to do this. But because they're so indebted, particularly in foreign currencies such as dollars and euros, and therefore. Are constantly needing to or prospectively needing to go to the IMF. They don't have the sovereignty to be able to say President Putin is the head of state, and therefore, as long as he's the head of state, enjoys diplomatic immunity. And under no and he's Russia is also an ally of ours. Our militaries train together. Russia's very helpful to us. We do business with each other and we like the business we do, so we're not going to be hurting an ally and we think these charges are politically motivated on bad evidence go away. They know that if they do that, that the Americans rather than say, well, to each their own and sovereignty, because after all, we respect Ukraine's sovereign right to do what it wants to do and make friends with who it wants to make friends of. And who are we to to deny that? Remember, this is the rules-based international order, not the law-based international order. And as our contributor Alcibiades said a few months ago in an op-ed that he wrote for us, well, as anybody who's ever grown up knows, rules are something set by your parents. And one of the first things that you learn as a child is that even though you are often wrong and your parents know what's better, your parents can change the rules on you when it suits them. Uh So one of the things that you learn by growing up in any family is that the world can be very, very arbitrary when it's based on rules instead of based on law. So... The French are going there to uphold the rules-based international order as opposed to the law-based international order and to try and break it up, and doubtless Macron will just want to talk about Ukraine because – he's macron he's not going to be clever and be like oh what you think i was here to talk about <laughs> oh no 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 no. <laughs> of course not um we'll save that for the g20 in which case i'll have plenty to say but here there is a lot of trade i want to talk with you about about cooperation between france and us and this and that and the other which might actually work to break up bricks more because then the brazilians the indians the chinese the south africans would just oh okay uh, He's here to just talk business. This is very nice, and France is a big market and sophisticated, and there are some products that we want to sell and things that we want to buy from them. Yes, let's talk. Like, No, he, he he's not that—I he, don't think Macron is that clever, and we saw that with the mishandling of these riots. He's just kind of a jerk wow
0: <laughs> yes i've definitely strategically placed the two most jm-centric topics at the front of the podcast <laughs> it's so me and lydia could just kind of relax and listen
1: <laughs> yes that was that was actually very informative it as really usual was.
0: yeah but what do you think about bricks like i'm kind of excited they've only officially revealed that algeria is a has applied and um, but they said what jm 22 other countries have applied <clears throat> and forty and for- have expressed interests or something like that
2: I unfortunately do not recall off the top of my head the two applications that I've been following are yes, Algeria but also Argentina, which is also quite interesting because it too is quite in hoc to the IMF. but knowing Argentina that's not a situation that much of their political class, albeit not all of their political class, like being in, and so they want to be able to align themselves with a group of countries that are going to be growing more quickly, that will allow Argentina to export more, and that also line up more with their growth profile and also with whom they tend to enjoy trade surpluses or not so big trade deficits as opposed to what goes on often with the EU and the US, which is not to say that Argentina doesn't have trade surpluses with some of those countries. It does so much as all the money of Argentine oligarchs tends to go to those countries instead of in Argentina. Argentina is kind of like Russia but without all the oil and natural gas, if you follow, so that creates a bit of. So the Argentines are constantly running into balance of payments problems, which have nothing to do with them supposedly being feckless and everything to do with the fact that their elites have some weird stuff going up on in their heads. So it's interesting to me that Argentina, despite being so dependent and still trading so much with the EU, wants to. Join BRICS, which is also interesting. I think that you might have seen over the past week that the EU had this big meeting with the Latin American countries, and which it showed, you know, the EU touted as we're going to begin shifting their opinions by just laying out things uh, for them. And the end result was they couldn't agree on a communiqué because the EU insisted on, you know, language about Russia's war of aggression and started throwing a fit when the Latin American country said, mm, we're not so comfortable with that, could we instead say that we're worried about the war in Ukraine and that we hope peace will prevail? No, unacceptable, because once again, it's the rules-based international order. And this is, again, why I think France was ultimately not invited to BRICS because they didn't want to listen to yet another lecture where they come and tell up and where some Westerner tells them, this is what you must do, and just... Kind of does so with a haughty arrogance of, well, because I've said so, surely you're going to do it. Surely you recognize my obvious superiority and how well put together my country is. And since you want to be like me, surely if you want to be like me and therefore be richer, you will listen to me. Except it doesn't work that way anymore. And the EU and the US are going to have to go through this for a few more years before they start getting used to it. Notice that I didn't mention the British britain doesn't really factor into anything anymore
0: why and, not yeah why
2: because we left the eu okay <laughs> <laughs> so therefore we're just not important anymore
0: lydia what are people in in russia do they talk about bricks do they have a general overall feeling about bricks is this something that's like hopeful i would say an average
1: russian person it's not that we don't think about BRICS, but I feel like, you know, we kind of have this little tiny thing going on in Ukraine, which is (laughs) kind of uh, taking up a lot of mind space for the people. But on a a more serious note, of course, people are excited. Um, I feel like if I were to describe the general mood, because BRICS is all about you know, economy. I would say that Russians are cautiously optimistic. Um, cautiously because, you know, it's it's not the first time we've been optimistic and then we've been kind of let down historically. But I feel like people uh, see Russia as this emerging power and they're hopeful that we'll be able to form really strong economic bonds and alliances and actually, you know, actually maybe become the superpower that people wanted us to become for a while. So, and definitely people see it as this kind of, um, how do I put it politely, Uh, they, they see it as this F you to the West in a way. And which is also nice from the Russian standpoint. And so, yeah, so people like it and people grow. I I feel like the general mood is that people feel closer and closer to uh, to these countries where before they maybe didn't think that much about them. When I say didn't think that much, I don't don't mean it as negatively. I mean, It it wasn't exactly on their radar, but people are becoming more interested in the geopolitics and the intricacies of all of that. So definitely Russians see it as a good thing.
0: Well, Lydia brought up a a thing that we don't really talk about that much, which is that that little thing that's going on in, in Ukraine that is weighing heavily on the minds of Russians.
2: We don't talk about that very much. We really should.
0: Yeah, we should give that a little bit more attention.
1: Just a tiny bit. I heard there was some type of an offensive going on. I heard different things. I mean, some people say that it's been going for a while. Some people say, you know, it's, it's not even exactly started yet.
2: So which is it? It is whatever our wise masters and truth purveyors in Kiev tell us it is right. at any one right. moment. That is what is going on. And so we will Ukrainian. never know the truth.
0: Well, we might eventually when the CIA does. <laughs> <It's anti-classified. laughs> but I mean, while you were gone, I mean, you saw it. It was just a roller coaster of emotions. It was like the counteroffensive has started. And then it was like, wait, 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 you guys rushed us into this counteroffensive. And then the West was like, no, we told you to wait. And you guys went ahead. And then it was like, we don't have enough weapons in training. And it's just like back and forth this strange like blame game and people are dying in the tens of thousands i've heard the losses are en- enormous like it's just i i'm not sure so i'll let jm because i honestly don't i wasn't oh, it's, at- it's
2: even better both uh the ukrainians and the west are saying different the same thing, but at different times. So at various times, it's Western officials saying the Ukrainians should have attacked earlier, and Zelensky saying, I wanted to attack earlier, but you guys didn't give me enough equipment, even though he said earlier. Now, in fairness to Zelensky, he has always said, as he's always said, always said, you haven't given me enough, I need more. But he did... To say that therefore, since he hadn't gotten enough, actually, he wanted to delay the counteroffensive to get more stuff or at least give his troops more time to train and plan and prepare. And the West keeps saying, no, you should have gone earlier because now the Russians were able to build these extensive fortified lines and uh, lay out mine fields. And both the West and the Ukraine are united on one thing. It isn't the Russian army that's doing this to them it's a bunch of mines now who put those <laughs> mines there i guess we'll never really know given the way they talk about it but i think that the russian army might have something to do with it you know just a little thought that there's this little thing out there called the russian army that might have something to do with it especially the 58th army which for those who know just a little bit of recent history is the army that destroyed mikhail sakashvili's very expensively built nato trained and ukrainian equipped army Mm. in 2008 including some of the most celebrated units in the russian army such as the 19th motor rifle division and the 42nd guards motor rifle division both of which also fought in georgia and therefore have recent a recent history of combat excellence just a little thought right there you know might have something to do with it. But no, apparently all the Ukrainians <laughs> need is a bit more grit and equipment, and they'll be able to smash through Russian soldiers who defense experts and Russia experts, such as Mark Galliotti, writing in the London Times, assure me that the reason the Russian soldiers from these very from these experienced and proven units are dug in is because they have low morale and poor training, and that is why Gerasimov has put them there, because that's the only way they'll stand and fight, even though, even (coughs) though, and this is where I'm getting really annoyed here and starting to rant, the Ukrainians haven't even reached the first defensive line, The Russian fortifications such as they're facing now are actually the sort of field trench works that soldiers normally dig. They haven't even reached the fortified lines with the concrete pill boxes and the layered tiger teeth or any of that. No, they're out in the security screening zone in front of the first fortified line that the Russians took back in January of this year and then got set ready to defend, and did some more more training. The fact that they refuse to admit this is really down to this one conceit that's really tying everybody up, including, of course, naturally, the Ukrainians, which is that people in NATO and Ukraine, because they're oriented to the West, have the right sort of mentality, and only they can possibly produce anything approximating military excellence. The idea that people with more... (gasps) Soviet mentalities might be able to produce military excellence simply does not compute. This is absolutely impossible. We would ground down and smash any dictator's army because dictators are bad, 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 bad people, and dictatorships don't produce good armies. The Wehrmacht says hello, by the way. So therefore... (laughs) Wow, controversial. Spicy! (laughs) So, So therefore... What must be going on, we just can't figure this out, and we just need to do this one little thing, and the thing that we want to become true will become uh, true, and they can't figure out that, no, it doesn't become true. And actually, you might have to reconcile yourselves to the fact speaking here more about NATO than Ukraine, because it's getting to the point, and we'll get to that when we talk about Odessa, where I think that over the next year we'll see that what Ukraine thinks doesn't actually matter very much anymore, it's never mattered very much anymore, is exactly what was set out in the website engelsbergsideas.com by the Brit- a British professor of war studies at King's College London. I'm very pleased to say here um, that as in to say that a British academic is able to objectively set things out. But given what he's saying, I have a suspicion that he's been doing things like reading DD Geopolitics to get his ideas and also people (laughs) like Armchair Warlord and Big Serge, because we've been saying the exact same things. But that's by the by. We do very good work and I'm very flattered that he did. And also more seriously, he might just be doing some more of what we're doing, which is open source information. Did you know that? We don't have a deep line. We just look at things that are on the (laughs) internet. And news agencies. Well, and from Tell that, us how you really analysis. feel. Don't tell them.
0: <laughs> Don't tell them that. My God, you take away the mystery. <laughs> but you know what's really... I but, haven't but, been paying attention but, to the counteroffensive or the telegram updates. I've only been paying attention to the Western coverage of the counteroffensive. And I think that's more telling than the actual footage of the stuff on the ground. If you know how to read, I think it's Brian Berletich who, like, pretty much all of his sources are Western media. If you know how to read them, they will tell you a lot. You just have to read them the right way. And when I saw this headline that said, hold on, I have it. Um, The one that said Ukraine's lack of weaponry and training risks stalemate in fight with Russia in the Wall Street Journal. I said, and and the subtitle, the United States and Kiev knew of shortfalls, but Kiev still launched the offensive. Just mm. the headline and the subline speak volumes about what's going on. If you understand how Western media works, this, all this, I don't even, I mean, I, I did read the article, but it just in the title alone, which, I mean, let's all be honest, when you're scrolling through social media or whatever, that's basically all you really get unless it really piques your interest. But just the title alone tells me that this is not going the way that it was planned.
2: But to go back to a point that has constantly irritated me, which is that it appears from all the open source stuff that we can glean, from all the articles that were written by all the different connected people, from what people like Scott Ritter are saying, and Ritter would know because he did have to try and plan part of, an op- part of Operation Desert Storm and run these sorts of simulations that when they plug different variables into the simulation, each time it came out as the Ukrainians losing. So the only way this adds up is if you assume, as Mark Galliotti and Michael Kaufman and others keep insisting, that the Russians are poorly trained and with bad morale. Then you can force a breakthrough, because with bad training and poor morale, all the firepower the superior firepower that Russia has will not be brought properly to bear on the, it is said, much better trained Ukrainians with higher quality equipment, and therefore they will be able to break through. This is how they must, how they seem to have come to the conclusion that it would all add up. And it was on the basis of a very, very bad misreading of what happened Um, especially in the Kharkov counteroffensive, where they seem to actually think that what the super-duper turbo patriots in Russia, and of course we're being very sarcastic when we're referring to people like Strelkov and like that as being super-duper turbo patriots, that all of First Guard's tank army ran away in Kharkov Oblast in September 2022. It was a regular second battle of Kharkov from May 1942, I tell you. that That's not really what happened. And even worse is that they appear to have misread what happened in Kherson, where they don't seem to have reckoned with the appalling casualties the Ukrainians sustained to do what they were able to do. And the fact that the Russians withdrew with their forces and logistics intact, not being harried very much by the Ukrainians, and that was because by the time that Suravikin advised Shoigu and Putin that it's really, if we better err if on the side of caution and withdraw our forces over the Dnieper because they could blow the Kakhovka Dam, and we've seen the, the effect that has had. And... We might be fine. We'll probably be fine. But do we really want to take that chance? And they made the choice of, no, we need to preserve our fighting power, our manpower, as Brian Verletich said they would do and as others said they would do. Um, But, yeah, they didn't – they think they just focused on the, oh, we successfully squeezed the Russians out and our guys didn't suffer that many casualties. I don't know. That must have been on the basis of what the Ukrainians were telling them. But even then, it's by not very – carefully reading things, because if you read some articles from, say, the Washington Post, you would have known the Ukrainian losses that they were sustaining trying to inch forward in Kherson were enormous. But back to bets and why I think it's interesting, like in terms of Western sources covering the state of this. So under part of this article where he calls Conformation of the defense, he says, superficially, it is not that Russian mili- the Russian military is employing defensive fieldworks in a way that is particularly new. For example, consider these lines from an article by Colonel A. Lebedev in the Russian military uh, journal, Misil, entitled Permanent Defense Systems in Light of War Experiences. Impenetrability is secured by echeloning fire structure in depth and establishing fortified zones comprising several sections. The attacking enemy troops should be left with only one type of maneuver, namely a frontal blow aiming at a breakthrough. After breaking through the front and neutralizing the defense structures along the axis of his blow, the enemy is gradually drawn into a pocket, bordered by fortified structures echeloned in depth, compartments of terrain, and a second zone. As he has very limited possibilities to expand towards the flanks, he is doomed to destruction in that pocket by the fire and counter blow of the defenders. What he, i.e., Colonel Lebedev, describes is a fair description of the challenge faced by Ukrainian troops in armor today struggling frontally through layers of mines and barriers, all the while being savaged by the missile and artillery fire of dug-in Russian forces. Except the article was written in 1945, and the war experiences to which he refers are those such as the gigantic battle of Kursk fought almost exactly 80 years ago in the summer of 1943.
1: Hmm. I will say this. My favorite, one of my favorite quotes from this, I don't know, couple of weeks that I read uh, on the offensive was from Zelensky, where he said that Moscow might try to make the Ukrainian offensive difficult. Which, if you think about it, it's very rude.
0: (laughs) It's very rude on Moscow's
1: part. (laughs) He was just seriously so upset. And I was like, okay, I, I feel your pain. You're trying to do an offensive here. You're trying to make it successful. And Moscow just might make it difficult.
2: I mean, Zelensky is an actor. You shouldn't heckle them when they're on stage. It's very rude. It's true. It's true.
1: But yeah, it doesn't look like this offensive has been going great. Now I'm convinced. Even though I've heard some, I've read some comments from Anthony Blinken, of of all people, who said something, something interesting, I thought.
2: Oh, you mean namely that Ukraine will restart again and show results soon, and that we're in early days yet?
1: Yes, exactly that quote. Let me find it. Oh, here here it is. He said... Um, when they deploy and go into action, all the forces that have been trained in recent months, the equipment that we have provided them in about 50 countries, and I think all this will make a significant difference and will lead to changes. What do we think? Will it lead to changes?
2: Um. Yes. I mean, every new action always changes something. Oh, come um, on. Show
1: more enthusiasm than this.
2: Okay. Okay. okay <laughs> sure. Um. Well, I guess, uh, I guess uh, to answer that question about the counteroffensive, I would like to, since I've spoken enough on this, talk some more about what's going on in Odessa in general, because that I think can help answer the question of what exactly is going to change if Ukraine does more stuff. Definitely. So, let's rather than starting with the missile strikes or at least that's my point of view. Uh Lydia, could you tell us a bit for our listeners for the benefit of what happened at the um at the what is the significance of this cathedral that got hit and uh what's going on?
1: Well, even if we don't go really deep into it, first of all, it's a historic site and I guess I should preface it with uh, with saying that Russians very much view Odessa as a Russian city, which I know some people, some pro-Ukrainian people might might say, "Aha." Uh-huh those russians imperialists but it's not that historically it was established by uh, Catherine the great and so people feel that it's very much a russian city and culture it it has a lot of historical value cultural value and russians if you know anything about us we're pretty historically minded and so another aspect is that uh that cathedral even though it is uh Ukraine, in Ukraine technically in Odessa uh it is uh, under the Russian Orthodox Church so it's not so it's not a part of the Ukrainian church which is also another reason why people react very emotionally to something like this and it was very strange <laughs> seeing uh dmitry Kuleba's comments on how, you know, how they were hurt that Russians supposedly hit the cathedral where I mean, if you look at what the, what they've been doing to the churches, to the, let's call it for simplicity, you know, to the Russian Orthodox churches, there are, and I guess something I want to say that when I say Russian Orthodox churches, the way Russians see, they don't see it as like ours, ours, these are our church. They see it as like ours, meaning that they're ours. They belong to the Russian people and to the Ukrainian people who have the same faith. And so this is our common heritage, even if some want to reject it, but it is what it is. And so definitely it makes no sense for us to target it. It would reflect very badly on us. And it's not something that we do. It's not something that we support. But definitely, definitely, I'm not going to say anything. But I think we all understand who actually has no hesitations to do something like this.
2: I would say that the damage pattern from everything that we've seen about what happened to the cathedral doesn't reflect 500 kilograms plus of explosives, which is what is in a Caliber or an Iskander cruise missile going into the cathedral, but rather a misfire from an air defense missile. Because some 500 kilo or even 800 kilograms of explosives impacting into that structure would look significantly worse like you can compare the impact of buildings after confirmed strikes from calibers and discenders like what happened to the to some of the buildings um in nikolaev particularly the administration building as compared to what has happened to the cathedral here and I think we also know who has an incentive to do this, uh, given what's been going on with the Lavra in Kiev. Um Before exactly. we back, back to Odessa, could you tell us a bit about the emotional resonance of the Lavra? Because I've noticed that on um, not just Russian Telegram, but uh, Russian official media, that there is a lot of anger about what's going on at the Lavra in Kiev.
1: Uh, well, I I think that anger comes from two places. First of all, as I th- I feel that <clears throat> most of our listeners would know, in Russian we we say about Kiev that Kiev Kiev uh, which is Kiev is the mother of the Russian cities, meaning that to Russians we view it as a, as a significant part of our heritage. And when we talk about heritage, what is heritage? It's religious, cultural, and so. That, uh, you know, the key of Petrovsk Lavra, it's uh, very much of cultural significance, first of all, even if someone is not orthodox or not actively religious, it is uh, cultural heritage. And so here's that. Uh, another point, well, I guess that's going to be three points. I was thinking about two, but I came up with the third one. So the second point is that they, they see it as the severing of the ties between our uh, people, <clears throat> between us and Ukrainians, which is also very painful because uh, this conflict is actually very emotional, very painful to the Russians on that level. Um, largely, it is viewed by uh, most Russians as civil war. And so they see it as a part of the Civil war. And then the third point uh, is that, as some of our officials have stated, and I'm not sure you can correct me on that. I don't know if it's already happening or it will will be happening, but they're bringing uh, a lot of the relics and things, icons from the uh, you know from the churches to Europe to supposedly, quote unquote, protect them. But largely, we see it as them stealing them, because um, essentially, it is not, even though you can say that that is Ukrainian property, religious things like that, they're not viewed as property of the government, they're property of the people. And so a lot of people have legitimate concerns that they will be lost to us uh, forever, that they might get sold, they might end up in some private collections, they might end up somewhere where people will not have access to them. And so that is the third point, uh, why it's, it's such a sensitive topic. Uh, Because we we do have a history to where we had to actually buy uh, our relics uh, from the European auctions to bring them back to our country, so people can uh, have access to them. And I know to some people who are not religious, it might seem silly, and they might ask because I've read opinions like that. They might say, "Well, what what is why is it so significant?" But trust me, it is to the people here. It is, and so yeah, that's. That's why it's been a very, very painful process, even to, I, I know personally, even to people who are not exactly hardcore Orthodox, uh, they still look at it and they're terrified
0: by these events. Well, let's take the religious part out of it. And even just location-wise, of where the the Transfiguration Cathedral is located doesn't make sense for a uh, any sort of Russian missile to be in that vicinity. Could it have been an errant missile? Sure. But when we look at the pictures of the damage, it just doesn't coincide with a missile landing on that on that structure. Um, I mean, that's not that's feelings taken out of the equation. That's the fact of the matter, um, regardless of what the site was. And now when we add in all of the things that we just iterated. I mean that just makes the case even stronger. Not that there's a point in even sitting here and saying like even arguing against it because does it really matter in the end? Not really. Um the church will get fixed eventually. They're just on another one of their PR campaigns and I'm not sure that this is even holding any water on either side at this point. Well, out of
1: I, I, curi- I, I'm sorry. I'll just say, out of curiosity, I went and looked at the comments under uh, Kuleba's tweet, where he's, you know, complaining about how we, as the barbarians that we are, destroying uh, churches and other important things in Ukraine, and you can see that a lot of the comments there are openly negative. And actually, a lot of people come out and say that they don't believe in whatever Ukraine is saying, which to me is very interesting, because I view it, obviously, being Russian, I have a certain bias, no doubt. But still, I feel like if something like this was happening last year, I feel like there, there would be more positive response I feel like more people would be trusting but I feel like Ukraine is losing a lot of the credibility and a lot more people even if they're they lean more pro-Ukrainian they're starting
2: to have doubts. What I was going to say like in terms of the impact of the strikes on Odessa is that it's interesting that Two things. It was noted by one of the deputy chairs of uh, the State Duma Defense Committee, but I forget which one. Very sorry to our listeners. I uh, don't have that to hand. But that he said that in terms of a strike in retaliation for the second Kerch Bridge bombing, this is not it. This was planned. And also, what's interesting is that the Russians don't always hit. Ukraine every night with a strategic strike. But not only have they been hitting Ukraine every night with a strategic strike, they've been hitting the same city and the same area of the same city now every night for about five nights with a strategic strike. There was a bit of a break the day before yesterday, but last night that clearly was lifted. And it's all at the port area. And this has all caused Zelensky to do two things, say one thing and do another thing, Uh, which is not to say in a hypocritical way, it's something that he said and something that he did. What did he say? He said, without a coastline, we have no country. What is he doing? He's asking for the Ukraine NATO Council to convene urgently to discuss the supply of weaponry. This tells me that in the now Six days since Russia has ended the grain deal, and since the port facilities in Odessa have been struck, and other military facilities in Odessa Oblast have been struck, that some logistic storage areas, probably containing quite a bit of stuff, have been hit. And uh, the Ukrainians desperately need to be topped up. Now, given what Biden said about what the U.S. providing cluster ammunition to Ukraine means, will they be able to do so? We shall see. But I have a feeling that it was a lot easier for NATO to get in masses of ammunition and other things through the ports rather than merely through the railways and the roads. So nothing will ever stop flowing to Ukraine, but I think we might in a few weeks, if what I think is true, begin to see some downstream effects from this as it becomes more difficult to supply Ukraine. But you two might actually see something that i do not see
1: Hmm. interesting point because yeah that actually might be true um well i was gonna say this i feel like the the intensity of the strikes and um you know the fact that they have been happening pretty much every night just kind of tells me that russia Obviously, it has been aware for a while, kind of, you know, where things are and what was happening, but was kind of, you know, I guess limited by the grain deal. But then once it was off, they're like, okay, for a game now. So,
0: um, I think that the that there was an inevitability to an assault against or on Odessa in some form. I just think that the grain deal uh expedited that. Um, it just is, I mean, I guess it is what it is. I don't, I don't.
1: Yeah, that's kind of what I meant. That it was kind of, it, it was always, I guess, um, part of the plan. But now that we got the green deal out of the way, you
0: know, <laughs> it's it's happening. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I, I feel like now we might, that whole green deal thing, I don't know if it's eligible. Like, and we might be too far past the point of no return for the green deal.
2: I think that, um, Putin is being sincere when he says that if the West complies uh, with its part of the agreement, then we within three months then we will return to it. I also think that Putin knows that given that the West are, and I think the Russian word is Lydia, correct me here need yeah, the that that, that that was good that the, the date that the West complies with its end of the agreement of, the grain deal will be the first of never. So the grain deal is dead. That's my judgment. I very rarely stick my neck out on making predictions, but that's my prediction. I'm pretty sure of this. The grain deal's dead. It's not coming back because uh, the West isn't going to suddenly trip over itself and work feverishly to connect Roselho's bank uh, to Swift and to um, make it much easier for russia to export its grain and fertilizer they're just not going to do that that's just not who they are
1: also did i just dream this or (laughs) did they say that that if they were to reconnect russia to to swift you know that bank that it would actually take months
0: or did i just read it somewhere did i just dream it i don't know everything is is a fever dream right now. It's all, nothing's really real. So you probably heard it. (laughs) It could be, it could be just too much sun.
2: No, no, I, no, you, you heard it correct. This is why the original grain deal was for six months because, uh, the undertaking was when Russia agreed to this back in June last year, that of course we'll do that, but it'll take us six months, you know, bureaucracy, this and that, and making sure that, Russell Hose Bank and only Russell Hose Bank is reconnected to SWIFT, so that you can't game it. So that it's only for fertilizer and agricultural products. But we'll work this. But you, know, but that will get. And we need to figure out how we're going to set that all up. And they just never did it.
1: Okay, then I'm not crazy. <laughs> well, I
0: mean, <laughs> <laughs> but, the,
2: but the West does like do, doing this gaslighting. Like they said that they would. They pro- Baker promised Gorbachev that NATO would not move one inch to the east, and um they gave that as a verbal pledge, and then they said, oh, we never gave that pledge. And then when it was revealed in 2015 by documentary evidence that that pledge had been given, they said, ha-ha, you should have gotten it in writing.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I've
2: yeah. heard drama. that a lot
1: which I actually feel like yeah you
0: they should have but that's a different matter yes entirely so I mean then what's what's next do you think another night of strikes in Odessa or um we think that we're we're gonna lay off for a little bit
1: Mm, I personally think that they will continue but I don't know I'm no military expert that's just my feeling I'm a woman I have feelings (laughs) So that, that's how I feel.
0: I'm just glad, I'm just glad you're not in charge. That's
1: all. <laughs> hey, I'm I'm more saying that a lot of people who who advocate for like immediate nuclear strikes whenever there is a drone flying over our borders. So here's that.
2: I I think I think uh, um, in terms of uh, things are going crazy, that um there are two other things that we could uh, touch upon uh, which is uh the Swedish embassy getting burned in Iraq oh, which right. I hope somebody, oh. somebody else has information on because I have not been right. uh, following that at all because and also what is happening with everybody's favorite historical reenactor
0: well uh I feel like all of the uh Turbidity in the Middle East is all kind of related together. So we have this uh, Iraq, who Iraqi uh, protesters, rightfully so or well within their rights, went and protested at the at the Swedish embassy, obviously against the recent Quran burnings. Uh, so they burned the embassy. I don't know if it was burned to the ground, but it was significantly damaged, and the Iraqi government expelled the Swedish ambassador. Again. I don't feel any way about it. I'm not like go Iraq or or, that's messed up. Shouldn't have happened to Sweden. I mean, it is what it is. You play the games, you win the prizes, you do what you need to do and you go home. So that's basically what happened. But at the same time, we also have Iraq making um, strengthening their partnership where they always have had a decent relationship with Syria, but strengthening their relationship with Syria Making a statement against Turkey in regards to the water, uh, we'll call it water battles for now, because it's not quite a water war in that region on the Tigris and Euphrates. Uh, we also have Turkey upset. So the, all of these things are kind of intertwined. And then we have America who says, you know what, in the midst of all of this craziness, we're going to deploy more ships to the Strait of Hormuz. We're going to make more um We're going to annoy Iran a little bit more. We're going to start picking apart things that are going on in the Middle East. The Arab League is starting to come together. We're redeploying more troops into Syria to protect our interests in the Idlib area and all of that. It's all happening at the same time. So I find it very worrisome because I think that it won't be an outright war, because Americans will never go for another war in the Middle East, not right now anyway, but they'll be putting boots on the ground in Syria and ships in the Strait of Hormuz for a reason, and that's to to start stoking the fires over there. I also heard a theory, now this might be tinfoil hat, so please uh, forgive me, it's not my own theory, but that Kissinger He recently visited China. Uh, The man is 100 years old. So for this man to travel to China requires a good deal of logistics, a medical team, etc. Why was what was so pressing for this man to go to China and speak directly to Xi? Well, one theory that I heard was that um, he went over there to basically say, like, we're going to start something in the Middle East. Please stand down.
1: Mm, Interesting. I haven't heard much in, about this situation. I guess you know, I was more when I was reading the news, I was more focused on other things. but that that is really interesting indeed, if that's the case.
0: well, I don't know about that theory. But even just the aforementioned stuff, it's like all of these little things, we all I mean, the Middle East is not quite the powder keg it used to be, um but there's still potential there. And the United States is knows enough about that area. Um, to know how to exploit those little potential, like those little bits of potential. So I, I worry especially about places like more unstable, like Syria. Um, I worry about places in Lebanon and and then them using Iraq and Iran to de- re- to further destabilize the Levant in order to keep protect their interests in Syria and Israel
1: could be. I also feel like, how do I put it? I feel like a lot of the times the whoever is running the U.S. policy, they're not exactly rational. Let's put it this way. So I feel like it might be that they see that they're losing in Ukraine. Let's call it for what it is. I guess you know I feel pretty confident saying that. So they might feel that it's kind of you know their old stomping grounds in a way. So it's a region where they. They could have some success historically, I guess. So that might be that, too.
0: Well, sure. I mean, it's kind of like we're going to go start some trouble over here. So then it will give us a good enough reason to say, hey, we've got a thing we've got to take care of over here in the Middle East and Levant. So we're going to have to, like, put this hot war on the um, in the freezer for a little bit.
1: Yeah. And if you think about it, the West is all about the optics. I mean they are about other things but they care about very much about how they look. So, yeah, that not that I think about it, it actually makes a lot of sense.
2: Um I try to stay out of uh Middle Eastern politics as uh, much as I can, but t- given the fact that the United States given that Syria has been admitted to the Ar- readmitted to the Arab League and given that uh the Syrian civil war has gone on far too long, I would just say this is a hope. I just hope that we would just withdraw from Eastern Syria and just get out. There's no reason for us to be there anymore. Um, it's over, such as regime changes we attempted, we lost. And also the whole politics with all the refugees fleeing, that's because the areas is at war and destroyed and is destabilizing the politics of Europe, get out, So that Syria can rebuild and some of those people can go home and I think we'll find that everybody's lives will get easier. That's my hope. Will it happen? No.
0: I think that's (laughs) probably a really good note to end it on. Our second podcast, two out of three or two two out of four podcasts have now ended on the note of Syria. So, I mean, if we could keep this, this going for like in perpetuity, that would be great.
1: Yes, let's just hope that we'll have will eventually have happier things to say about Syria. We will. And and the pros- yeah, I'm I'm hopeful too.
0: All right. Well, thank you all for listening. If you want to listen to us or read us drone on more and more and more, please subscribe to our Substack. Almost all content is free. That's the best way to support us. If you'd like to check out some of our community projects, please look at them on our Twitter page for our Community sponsorship in Yemen. Thank you so much again, Lydia and JM. And this has been another episode of the Didi Geopolitics Podcast. See you all next time.